Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, I'm Anna, and I'm really excited to have two amazing guests joining me for this episode of the podcast. This is the second episode of this format on the theme of what works and what doesn't in a complex property market. It's being released on the same day as the paperback launch for my book, Strategic Property Investing, What Works and What Doesn't in a Complex UK Residential Property Market. On that, I was totally bowled over by the response to the ebook launch. It seems to have really struck a chord with investors, which is great, and became an Amazon number one bestseller in real estate and investing, which made the sacrifice of 16 months worth of weekends seem worth something. In any event, the link to grab a copy of the book is bit.ly slash strategic property investing. And if you like it, I would love it if you take the time to leave a review on Amazon. Now onto the podcast. So my guests today are Richard Bowser, a veteran investor and editor of Property Investor News, which is one of the leading magazines for landlords across the country. And Martha Grecos, who is a planning law and policy barrister and former head of planning at two leading London law firms. She was also recently named as one of the most influential women in planning by Planner, listed as one of the top three planning lawyers in the UK by Planning, and was voted as one of Property Week's top 40 under 40 across the sector. So welcome to the podcast, both of you, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Yes, indeed. So uh, what I wanted to focus on today was what works and what doesn't in a complex UK residential property market, which we're undeniably in. And throughout the episode, we'll touch on strategies, deals and managing assets from kind of making money to the risks of losing it. You both had illustrious career paths, but they've been quite different strategic focuses, which is why I'm so excited to bring you together to get your different perspectives. But just before we get into it, for context, can you explain what kind of investment strategy you've focused on in your career and investments, perhaps starting with Richard? Yes, of course, Anna. So I really am a traditional landlord stroke property investor, and I don't do anything which is particularly exciting. It's very vanilla. I have been doing it for many years, 30 years now and 20 years with the majority of my rental portfolio, which are single-let units in the north of England. And um, I describe myself as a landlord, and I am an active landlord on two properties in North London. Again, I've had these many years. So, you know, compared to what some people are doing in the marketplace or aspire to do in the marketplace, I am not doing anything terribly complicated. Perfect. And how about you, Martha? Well, I help my clients who tend to be developers and investors get value through acquiring planning permission. And the way I do that is very much to try and bulletproof their planning permission. So it's not judicial review. There's no litigation. So they go forward and build, construct or use their sites. And I call this a gradle to grade concept. So I come in providing strategic advice, reviewing application prior to submission, hopefully then sorting things out to then get the consent. Now, adding planning permission, if I give the example of the sort of work that Richard's involved in, the sort of looking at homes, typical homes, well, that will typically increase its market worth. 
However, how much value this equates to can depend on a number of things, such as the property's location, the extent of the work that's covered in the permission, whether your permission adds an extra room, when your permission was obtained, because of course it only lasts three years, and the type of permission that's been obtained. So if you magnify that small example onto a larger scale, the sort of developments I work on, the large master plans, the regeneration schemes, the tall buildings, etc., then planning permission transforms the value and the quality of land and gives you the ability to create development opportunities. It can be a very long, painful and risky business fraught with hassle and uncertainty, but the potential gain there usually massively outweighs the pain. Brilliant. And with the previous question in mind, would you say your focus area has changed dramatically over, say, the last five years? And if so, can you just pinpoint the top causes of that and how they've affected investors in your niche? Perhaps again, starting with Richard. Yes, perhaps I've undersold what I do, but in terms of you know, simple landlordism, because I've also over the years done some small scale planning and also some small scale development as a partner. Uh, as a JV partner, uh, but referring to the last five years as a straightforward property investor and landlord, not much has really changed. We've had two major impacts in that five-year period. One was the Brexit referendum, and most secondly, obviously, and very pertinent to where we are at the moment, what's going on all around us with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, both of which effectively feel to me, I felt certainly as a London-based investor, landlord and property owner, in 2015, 2016, it felt as if you know, the rug had been pulled underneath. And that certainly feels how it is at the moment in terms of the property market, that many people's, you know, not just property market, but many businesses, obviously, and many lives are being impacted. But in terms of day-to-day, for me, in terms of planning and development stuff in the last five years, well, I've sat back a bit because I've watched, you know, because of the Brexit referendum. In fact, this year, until a month or so ago, my plan was to be more active this year in terms of acquiring one or two London properties with a view to an added value gain. And I, I was looking at uh, central commercial added value opportunities with residential attached, mixed use. So, uh, but of course, the, you know, with what's happening at the moment, we've got so much uncertainty and I'm just sort of stepping back again to consider until maybe the dust settles a little bit in a month or two's time. Mm. Uh, that's where I am personally. Martha, before you um, provide your answer, just wanted to pick up on one thing because I would say even if on a personal level things haven't much changed because they're long-term assets, Um, and you're still managing them well and when you buy you're still doing the same kind of analysis or whatever the process is still the same I would say the the market that you're in has changed quite dramatically in terms of in particular regulation which I don't think in the mainstream media gets in a way enough press because I think it's very significant impact on the bottom line for landlords do you not see that kind of changing the day-to-day at all for you? For me personally? Well, I guess for you, but also I suppose you have the advantage of having the perspective of all of your readers and writers who are also in the sector. So I suppose personal, but also a general market trend. Yeah, absolutely. Putting aside Brexit, forgive me, from from a landlord perspective, obviously in the last five or so years since... George Osborne, as Chancellor, decided to uh, make some significant changes to the tax regime for private landlords, then yes, absolutely, that's impacted. And uh, 
people have, have had to make decisions on whether to incorporate or not and the consequences of incorporating it ahead. And it's a very, very complex picture when you start to, to drill into it for portfolio landlords with Section 24. And also buying and trading with the 3% additional stamp duty on second home purchases. So forgive me, that is obviously a very key third thing to think about Yeah, that's occurred over the last five or so years. Well, I guess the point that we're kind of together making is that things have changed a fair bit for going forward, but the assets that you already owned, there's not as huge a change. The assets that are long-term assets with long-term tenants and gradual rent increases no, it's, um, as I say, it's fairly uneventful. Yeah. And how about you, Martha? So what are the big causes of change if, if they've been dramatic over the last sort of couple of years and how have they affected investors in your niche? Yes, thanks. I would agree with Richard and yourself, Anna, in terms of sort of three main factors, economic climate, politics, and of course, change in regulation and legislation. Good and bad, actually, changes, I'd say, on those. It really depends for me, though, what sorts of clients I'm working for and what their aims are. So if we look at sort of central London developers, they have to continue to focus on central London. Prime housing depends on its location. So for them, it may be if economics and politics you know, has a bit of a shake up, then they may just go a little bit slow, wait until the right buyer comes along because it will eventually pick up, especially if they're already built out and committed to that, that housing. However, if you look at master planning and regeneration developers, they are going into partnership, joint ventures with, say, public bodies or social housing associations, because joint up thinking and working can bring forward some land that's been on hold with someone who has that money and someone who has that land, and that can potentially release the site for development, but also share out the costs and risks. You know, examples are we now have a lot more regulation legislation to do with community infrastructure levy, and that's a, quite a tax. You know, it's just a calculation. You can't negotiate that. Understandably, the need for more affordable housing, which, of course, also then reduces how much market housing you can produce. And, of course, that changes the margin of return for a developer. And then, you know, the increase of financial requests of payments through 106 agreements, 106 obligations, and the cost for large, such large scheme could also be decontamination issues and all infrastructure issues and the like. So, of course, you know, like I said, these partnerships are coming forward to try and share out those costs and risks in a way and move things forward. Other such master planning and regeneration developers are also looking in areas in outer parts of London or in other regional cities, given they have seen returns are higher for them as in London, as London does have high land values and the margin of returns can be slimmer as a result. But then the positive, if you can sort of flip it on the other side, for small developers and investors is that they are using some legislation that has come forward to speed up housing to their advantage because they're looking at the value on their land and buildings by looking at that legislation and using it correctly. For example, permitted development rights, which is to convert offices to residential. And there is a lot of that happening at the moment. Very good. Very good example. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So on to another point. And um, you might think I'm sort of biased towards blue sky thinking from the title of the book with strategy everywhere. But the truth is having the right strategy is totally irrelevant if you 
don't get deals done or manage things correctly. It's also interconnected and also interconnected with what's happening in the market and regulatory trends, as we just touched on. But often I think transactions and management are where investors end up facing the unanticipated issues or making expensive mistakes. So I wondered if you could highlight a couple of the biggest mistakes you see from investors or developers making in doing deals and perhaps provide some advice for what they can do to avoid making similar mistakes going forward. Again, let's start with Richard. Yeah, happy to uh, go into that because I, I see a lot of that occurring and have been seeing it over many years through the cycles. Thankfully, I've managed to avoid much of the mistakes that I see other people making, particularly with development, I think as Martha's already touched on. It is a risky business, but with fantastic rewards if you get it right. So I suppose that it's for a property investor news, you know, I'm in a fairly, you know, interesting position to observe the wider picture. And I see people at different stages of their to use that term journey. But I suppose Icarus syndrome is what I often use when I look at property developers at certain stages of the upcycle that, yeah. that we get. So, you know, they're over leveraged. And unfortunately, as we've seen in the last more recent years, perhaps, with the propagation of joint venture and private investor monies and crowdfunding becoming more popular and people being more aware of and also the section 24 tax situation has perhaps driven more private investors towards that as well so we've got developers with icarus syndrome trying to do too much getting over leverage they're undercapitalized perhaps don't have a sufficient contingency funds and um, when things don't quite work out as they expect they themselves, perhaps their funders, and as we're seeing at the moment in a number of cases, their investors are left in, in difficult situations. Yeah, I love that analogy. I think that's really, really good. And Martha, have you got any thoughts on? Uh, I do. And um, with you, Anna, I completely uh, I like that Icarus syndrome, Richard, yeah. that phrase that you use, because actually it kind of fits in really nicely with what I want to say. Because for me, for smaller developers and investors, I think you just need to make sure you carry out a thorough due diligence before you purchase or invest. You know, the example of the permitted development rights that I gave, I can list out three pitfalls that they need to avoid. I'd love to hear them. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, the first one is you need to check that you, you know, if you have an office building that you're looking to purchase to convert to residential, that that actually has a qualifying use, that it, you know, in effect, it has a sole and continued office use. Secondly, just check that the planning permission development right has not been excluded because it can be excluded through a planning condition or it can be controlled but not removed by an obligation in Section 106 agreement or it could actually have been constrained by an Article 4 order or some other order that has removed that right. Yes. Or it may simply be a listed building which you cannot use the planning permitted development right for. And actually, thirdly, think about what you're actually entitled to do under that permitted development right and what you want to achieve. This is because it only allows for a change of use and does not include building operations, which you need planning permission for. So I guess what I'm trying to say with those three people is try and avoid the Icarus syndrome that Richard mentioned, because people see this sort of PD right office to resi and just rush out to do it. But you just need to step back, do your DD, think it through. And of course, it goes without saying that you need to get some advice from a planning lawyer. And I would say that as a planning lawyer, 
you know, I've, I've seen too many investors use a real estate lawyer to do their planning work or not even use anyone to review the planning side of their potential new deal so as to save money. But all they do is store up issues for themselves down the line when actually if they spent a few pounds upfront, they would be saving themselves a lot of money and pain in the long term. Yeah, I completely agree. And just to tie into that, I suppose one of the things I've seen most frequently is investors or aspiring investors seeing the reward or the potential reward in blazing lights and unfortunately Mm. just not seeing, not even knowing what the risks are, not so many unknown unknowns. They're not usually known unknowns. It's usually unknown unknowns. And because like you said, they haven't done full due diligence or haven't consulted with experts and that can be really painful and risky. So how about handling investments once an investor has an asset? What are the big issues that you both see in in your respective focus areas and what can investors do to avoid such mistakes? Let's start with Richard again. Yeah, so just clarify on that one, Anna. Well, I suppose for you, it's long-term holding. Yes. What what are the issues that you see and the mistakes that people make and how can other investors avoid such mistakes, perhaps in relation to stuff you've seen via the magazine, because I suppose you have a very full market understanding of what's happening via that. Yes. There is too much of a, a get-rich-quick mentality prevalent. I think it's a it's societal issue to some extent. People these days seem to think either they can do things easily and take shortcuts People want easy solutions. They're not prepared, as has already been mentioned, to do thorough due diligence. If they, the shiny penny syndrome. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of those things I observe and see. But in terms of going forward, then I think it just comes down to skill sets, your ability to look in the mirror and assess who you are and what you and your team can deliver. Am I making sense here? Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. It's kind of processes, partnerships, and getting all that right and understanding it from the get-go, whether you're holding for the long term or, I imagine, for the short term, although I haven't done these short-term projects myself for a while now. Yeah. I mean, just picking up on what Martha was saying about permitted development. I mean, I remember standing up at some large property events back in sort of 2016, and this was three years after the office to residential as as it's you know permitted development of offices into residential was allowed in by government back in 2013 and for a year or so it was a fairly good secret so to speak people were aware of it but all of a sudden it was a bandwagon and in sort of maybe in 15 16 people were jumping on it left right and center and i could see what was happening and, and i could also see what was happening in the market people were telling me and of course people started chasing you know they saw this as the shiny penny and chasing what was the fashionable strategy but it, i just come back to the fact that and then of course they made errors people overpaid for sites and they got into stuff they shouldn't be doing and as has been mentioned maybe didn't seek the most appropriate professional advice from planning consultants, legal advisors, such as etc. So I just come back to, it may appeal, but you have the skill sets, you have the knowledge, you have the understanding, can you access the people that have and work with them to deliver the product and therefore the profit that you buy to deliver? Yeah. I completely agree with that, Richard. You know, my view is if I continue on this permitted development is, you know, you need to use the experts to give you some guidance to make sure there's less chance of mistakes happening you need to understand legally the process and what the order actually requires us to acquire that right. 
three areas come to my mind as to what could be a little bit of a hurdle or a pitfall for people if they don't take this advice. You know, once you've acquired this asset and you want to go forward, the first one is that this right is actually subject to what is called a prior approval. Basically, you have to apply to a local planning authority for determination as to whether prior approval will be required in four areas, which is transport highways, contamination, flood, and any impact of noise from commercial premises on the intended occupants of the development. On here, you could also have conditions imposed. There is also no prescribed application form. It is valid as long as it provides what the order states. And there is a 56-day timetable well, when that right potentially crystallises. So what is worth noting here is that you need to use an expert to assist you. So many people have used architects or attempted to do this themselves and find themselves in some sticky situations given they have not interpreted the order correctly. Secondly, even if they acquire that right, they also need to know that you need to complete the works within three years. It's not like planning permission when you just, you know, stick a spade in the ground. You just need to commence the works. This is really important because otherwise you will lose that right. And this is crucial if you're trying to sell on or even if your buyers are trying to get funding or mortgages. And lastly, I think people get caught up as in this shiny penny, as you've both quite rightly mentioned, and they just forget to think a little bit outside the box because they need to be aware, for example, that if they create new floor space, they could actually be liable for community infrastructure levy. So again, I think it just shows that you get advice from start to finish to make sure that no mistakes happen along that route. Yeah, I think that's very, very good advice. So sort of coming to the end now, getting the right strategy and doing great deals and managing your assets well for a while is no guarantee to success. Things could change so quickly as we've seen just in the last few months. And I think years actually in the residential property market, but it's very significant. It's sort of exaggerated in the last few months. Do you have any advice for investors in your respective fields for how they can adapt? to the current environment and sidestep the challenges, minimise the risks and I suppose at some point in the coming months make the most of the opportunities in the context of what we're going through at the moment. So yeah I'm happy to go first on that Anna. So just continuing what we were just talking about with getting into areas and not understanding maybe that the devil is in the detail one of the key things that i see people you know really need to think about particularly now with what's like to be in front of us in the next sort of six twelve months is making sure that you're real about what you can bring to the table uh, and i'll just use an example of the hmo market house and hospital occupation which again has been very fashionable for obvious reasons in the last 6 or 7 years with people you know chasing income in a world of very low inflation and very very low interest rates people have chased look to acquire assets that generate more income and hmos have definitely become more fashionable but i, I think of them as sort of small hotels and it's all very well saying, which I, you know, I want to become a portfolio HMO landlord. I want to, you know, in, create larger HMOs. But I would say then it comes down to, well, look at yourself. You know, are you a builder? Do you have the practical skills, or can you align yourself in some sort of joint venture with someone who is the builder, the practical creator of the products, or are your people skills? sharpened and and you're very good at 
dealing with people. If you're not very good at dealing people, then you've got to look at delegating to someone who has people skills. And if you can't do that, then you really are getting into areas which you shouldn't be getting into. Yeah, I think sound advice, Richard. And Martha, how about you? What about adapting in the space that you focus on? I guess for me, focus is about relationships. My business is all about relationships. I've never seen development as being the outcome of individuals. It's been very much the product of everyone working together. So I guess I would encourage everyone to maintain the relationships, keep going with those, whether it's with a council, as the local planning authority, your project teams, your agents, you know, your lawyers, and collaborate with everyone to make sure solutions are found that are perfectly tailored to response to your business requirements. A really good example of that of late is having to postpone payments, you know, whether it's through 106 agreements or because of seal. And of course, you know, those are quite rigid because they're all kind of written down and seal is kind of, it's all in regulations. But at the moment, given the climate that we're living in, you know, there are some comfort letters that have been written in agreements between councils and developers to postpone those. And having that relationship to be able to approach them and to say that, look, and and be quite genuine and to say, look, you know what's happening out there. The whole world's facing it. This is the impact it's having on my business. We want to bring this development forward for you. However, we need a bit of respite. Can we agree this? And rather than going through the whole malarkey of kind of changing those agreements, given the a speed that needs things need to be done as we've seen the past couple of months then having that relationship to go and talk to them and make some amendments uh, and changes by just the even a memorandum of understanding or a comfort letter whatever it may be actually just puts a little bit of grease on those wheels to keep everything going so relationships that's a really, really good example and answer. So, and a lovely note to end on because you both wanted to talk about people. And I think that you're right. Real estate is such a people and relationship driven industry, whether we're kind of all working from home or and recording on Zoom, unfortunately, or whether we're sat down together and can do things normally. Finally, for listeners who might want to find out more about what you do and follow what you're up to, where are the best places for them to do that? I'll start with Richard again, just for the pattern. Sure, yeah. Very simple. Just type in propertyinvestor.news, propertyinvestor.news into your browser and you'll find us and you'll come across our portal, our website. It's got getting on for 15,000 articles now for people to, to search. Fab. And Martha, how about you? And it's the same for me. It's my website. So if you type in marthagrecos.co.uk, you'll find me. Come sure, say uh, do you want to just spell that out in case? Of course, yes. <laughs> uh, so it's M-A-R-T-H-A-G-R-E-K-O-S dot co dot UK. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. I really enjoyed hearing your perspectives. And thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.